do that. <laughs> you know, that's not my car. That's my boss's car. And if something were to happen to my boss's car, well, I'd get in trouble. Lucky for you, he's got a spare. Fix it. Ha 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 ha! Fuck you! Ladies. Come one step closer and I will knock his teeth out. Fix it. Can I at least get a rag to wipe my face first? Nope. Tire first. You are listening to TMB DOS. They must be destroyed on sight. The following podcast about film often contains foul language, discussions of an adult nature, and spoilers for the films discussed are to be expected. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. They must be destroyed on sight! Well, welcome back. It is They Must Be Destroyed on Site, episode 189, and we're not quite doing what we said we were going to be doing this year. We break <laughs> the rules. We break the rules. Yeah. That's what we do. Yeah. So, you know, I noticed we already lost one person on our uh, Facebook group. We had 100 up until like today, and now it's 99. So, no, well, somebody man. got banned, uh, presumably. Mm-hmm. For... No, I, I assume somebody just is like... Man, fuck these guys. They said they were going to start in the 1900s and work their way up, and immediately they're pulling this 2019 bullshit on us, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, this was this was the thing where after the, the kind of, like, truncated conversation last week, I was kind of re-watching the film, and I uh, DM'd Lee in our little private chat and said, let's let's talk about this movie. I think it's worth talking about, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so we're going to be doing uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm your host, Lee. Real as a donut, motherfucker, Russell. And <laughs> there were so many lines to pick from. So uh, many, yeah, I know. Uh, joined again by my co-host, as always, Daniel. Burn you Nazi bastards, Harper. How you doing, sir? I thought that was the most Very apropos, yeah, no, Ooh. yeah, no, yeah. 
one day we'll do Inglorious Bastards, and uh, you know, on that day, you know, you know how we get to Carnegie Hall, right? <laughs> mm. It's almost like he remade Inglorious Bastards in this film, just for a brief second, right? Yeah, there is a little bit of that. Uh, uh, there's so much here. There's so much. Here. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we got some comments first, so we'll go through these real quick. A couple YouTube comments here. Shadowman four seven one zero, who comments on our YouTube videos a lot, uh, on the Blue Carbuncle one says, I watched this episode after listening to the podcast. It's a really a very enjoyable episode where most of the people involved, including the culprit, are fairly decent people. Eh, I don't know if the if the uh, butler or whatever who... Uh, yeah. Yeah, he kind of puts a guy in jail. For, for... <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, it's interesting that the only real bad guys in this are women, the owner of the blue carbuncle, and the scheming maid. Uh, get, well, I guess the maid is kind of presented more in a villainous way in this one. Yeah. Yeah, you, maybe you have a point. Uh, definitely the, the rich woman's just like a full-on bitch. Like, she's just... Yeah. yeah. Right. I have no idea if uh, that was intentional on Doyle's part or not. It's been decades since I read the story. Well, I think Jack mentioned, and I think I recall this too from reading the actual story, it's much more the actual uh, butler or whatever and the actual uh, original text that kind of is is the one who sort of starts this and that the uh rich lady she's hardly even mentioned really the maid or whatever she's kind of more suckered into it i believe more than anything else if, if i recall correctly i think jack mentioned that on the episode i can't yeah remember. that sounds familiar i i haven't read the story so i don't know yeah um yeah but thanks thanks for uh thanks for listening and uh, thanks for the comment always nice to have good youtube comments and we'll move on to one that's not so nice <laughs> Because uh, it's asinine or because it's mean? That's the, the those are two. It's you know. a little mean. So this is uh, from some guy, and I, I had to click his fucking user profile and go to his channel too. He's like some spiritualist guy who believes in this. Well, purports to believe in astrology and bullshit. He's this name's probably made up and fake. He calls himself Andreas, okay. and. Yeah, and on our Queens slash Recruits episode, back when we were doing some sex comedies uh, a while yeah. back, uh, it says, upload the goddamn films or fuck off. See, I, I follow that under asinine. That's kind of... Yeah, I, I, okay. You know, it's, you know, it's one thing to, to be like, yeah, I don't know how to use YouTube. That's, you know, that's one thing. Uh, your commentary is vapid and you guys are stupid or whatever. Like, that's a, you know... That's well, a- uh, see, the thing is, is like, when I went to his profile, <laughs> then he has links to his website. So I went to his website, and his website's all about everyone coming together spiritually and being positive and, and treating people right and stuff like that. But, yeah, when you're on YouTube, you can just be a... You're, but you're- then he blames us for not giving him the jerk-off material for free that he was looking for. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go to Rare Lust, dummy. Both films are on there. It, it right. doesn't take a lot of work. Um, it really doesn't. Really doesn't. No. No. On our Shockwaves uh, episode, just go way back to when yeah, we did the little Nazi yeah, zombie so month. That's like episode thirteen or something. Something like that. Yeah, way back. Uh, uh, someone called Goliath Sparrow says, "I got to find Shockwaves. I'm obsessed with it. Looks and sounds terrifying. My kind of film. Yeah." I, I think it was I, on YouTube when we watched it. I don't. Rem- I mean, I thought I'm so. pretty sure it is. No, right. I mean, well. it, I'm, I don't think it's in the pub. I think it's in public domain, so um, should be able to find it. But uh, yeah, imagine uh, if that guy is like listening to this three years from now and is like, "Oh, you finally told me how to find the film I was looking for." <laughs> <laughs> he tunes back in for this one. 
Yeah. <laughs> and Jeff Williams. Yeah, it's uh, on YouTube right now. Yeah. So ironically, comments on our thing, I wish I knew how to find the film. I, it was on YouTube the whole time. He was probably looking for it on YouTube and found our podcast, <laughs> right. like a lot of people do. But then he was very nice about it. And it was like, oh, I mm-hmm. wish I could find this film. And just scroll down, buddy. You'll find it. I promise. I have, to, I have to remember to uh, give, him a, give him the link. Help him along. Yeah, no, no. Bit. It's right there. Yeah. It's the first thing when I, I just checked it on YouTube. It was right from there. A, from a YouTubing veteran like myself yeah, to yeah. an obviously a new user, I will help them out. <laughs> Reach, Put the olive branch out there. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, Jeff, as longtime content creators, <laughs> yes. as influencers, influencers, we will tell you here's how to find this film. Link right there. It was it was right there the whole time. Jeff Williams comes up with his recommendation of the week, and this is Dial One 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 Nine from 1950. It says a mentally ill young man holds patrons of a neighborhood bar hostage. Uh, Marshall Thompson plays against type in this tight, tense, low budget. Says no one is safe right from the outset. Well, that sounds cool. Yeah, I saw the uh, I saw that posted and was like, yeah, no, that one sounds great. Yeah, let's just add it to the ever expanding list that we'll never get through. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, you should see this list we got, guys. It's pretty fucking big now. Like I, I added a bunch of stuff to it this week. Um, he did I, after I shamed him last week. Uh, he did add. He did add some stuff. <laughs> well, I finally got around to it, and I was I was looking to try to fill as many gaps in it as I could because you know we have some years that have nothing on them yet. So it's just just to give us options. So it's like, oh, we're doing the thirties this month. No, we got like fifteen movies we can pick from in the thirties or something. I think like we have way more than fifteen for the thirties. I think we <laughs> probably have like fifty for the thirties at this point. Um, you know, like it's it's gonna it's gonna be a really weird experience. In fact, I think next week we might do three films that total less than sixty minutes. So, yeah. You know? Well I mean if Which if is you... fine because we're doing a three hour movie this week. So, you know, like Yeah. I mean if you go if you go if you go and look at like lists of best movies from 1900 to 1910 almost all of them are like movies that are under a half an hour long <laughs> because that's and, just and half of them don't exist anymore yeah like it's just yeah it's it's really tough uh you know like there is a there is a um twitter that i follow called movies silently mm-hmm. um which is like a silent film fan who you know was all you know all about like kind of that pre-1927 pre-1930 and, you know, like the richness of the cinema of that era and just kind of talking about it. Cinephiles really ignore that completely for the most part. Yeah. For, you know, accessibility reasons, for, you know, for a lot of reasons, right? <clears throat> and so part of why I was like, oh, yeah, let's let's really kind of dig in and do that. And then, like, as I was kind of looking around, it's like I heard there's there's just not much that's like kind of easy. It's not that the stuff is available. It's just kind of hard to pick it without just sort of like pulling out of a hat. And so you yeah. either have to kind of obsess over it or you have to, you know, just kind of pick the high points and move on so i mean it's gonna you know i'm we're probably not gonna do a whole lot before 1920 on this on this go round mm-hmm. hopefully we'll kind of come back to that um down the line when i've had a little bit more time to work on it anyway that's just kind of been i've been kind of slowly building this list for you know like a, a month or two now um just kind of idly like adding titles as i as i kind of yeah it. daniel it's tough it's tough <laughs> daniel's you know? actually doing work on this 
I spent like a half an hour and I just sort of blitzkrieged in and like dropped like 20 titles on the fucking list. Just right. like, oh, let's do this shit. <laughs> now, the list is getting pretty full. I, I'm thinking mm-hmm. we should, uh, and, and a whole lot of it, a lot of it is just kind of giving us options because we're not going to obviously do that many films from the 30s. Right. Um, so maybe, maybe we'll uh, kind of screenshot it and put it on the Facebook group or something. So yeah, that'd, that'd be a good idea. Kind of what we've, what we're looking at, um, which is not the list of films we're going to do as much as it's, you know, sort of list of possibles. And I think I think we talked briefly about, you know, we could do this again just over. Like we could again, yeah, we like next year. There's no yeah. reason. There's no reason not to, you know, just get as far as we get and then cycle back through. You know, yeah. like nobody gives us rules for this podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we make the fucking rules. We run Barter <laughs> Town here for fuck's sake. Forget it, Jake. It's Timbados. Okay. Um, Speaking of Polanski, moving on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so we can get into what we watched in the last little while. Um, I'll let you go first. I know you got one thing to mention. I did finally get to the last episode of The Mandalorian mm-hmm. uh, yesterday, and uh, I think it ends really nicely. I think yeah. the end you know, of the season, like it's, it kind of was starting to feel like a little bit of a movie of the week kind of you know format, which is fine, you know, but but kind of wasn't really kind of going anywhere. And I think it really does kind of end episode eight really does kind of give it a, a kind of a strong finish that leads into something that hopefully will have a little bit more heft in season two. Although I would be perfectly fine with it kind of keeping light and kind of doing yeah. doing its thing and not, I hope it doesn't become kind of ponderous, slow, I'm going to quote prestige television, but I would like for it to feel like it's doing something, you know, a little bit more than I think season one did. But I think kind of giving us a big bad, which I think is what it's kind of like setting up in, in episode it, seven and eight, yeah. kind of giving us kind of an antagonist that we're sort of working against. It really kind of left me wanting more, which I was definitely in the place of after the first, you know, I, I was kind of in the this is fine. I'll be happy to, but like, I wasn't really kind of itching for another season. Uh, but after episode eight, I'm definitely looking for another season and it, and it's, um, it's really satisfying. It really kind of sells set pieces really well. I mean, it, it kind of does the thing that star Wars always does. And that is it's, it, uh, <laughs> it kind of sets up its set pieces and then just gives us like kind of connective tissue between them. Yeah. Uh, although here, I think the TV format and the sort of lower budget, although it's, it's very well budgeted, but you know, sort of not, not having to kind of push a big Skywalker narrative for two hours, it gives us a, a lot more breathing room and lets us kind of live with these characters a lot more and you can kind of lead them and come back and you can yeah. sort of sort of have a, a lot more of kind of a character actor experience with a lot of this stuff. And I think there's a lot of stuff that's kind of left open for season two. And I mean, again, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I thought it was really satisfying. I like Giancarlo Esposito. Uh... Yeah, no, he's amazing. Yeah. Um, um, Breaking and, Bad, if you if for people who watch that, yeah, show, Gus, then, Gus from Breaking Bad. Bad, yeah, no. Also from uh, Homicide. Yes, he, yes, like last last couple seasons or last season, I think it was. I know he was in it. I have not watched that far in Homicide yet. But yeah, yes, um, a really really great actor who should be in more stuff. Honestly, um, yeah, he's great here as like genocide general. So you know, <laughs> it's almost throwback to sort of old school television where it's, you got this recurring villain who's in the background, probably. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm kind of thinking season two is going to be like, oh, he's going to be in the background here and there. They're going to because he's this moth from the empire, but he still got, apparently got a, a lot of resources because I mean, he, he walks in and kills Werner Herzog spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen it, yeah, yeah. kills him and all his crew just because, you know, they're expendable to him. 
So he, right. he just wipes them out, right? And so apparently he's got fucking resources, and he's probably basically kind of running the outer rim area or whatever that uh, Mandalorian's working in. You know, you can have your little bottle ship episodes or whatever where they, they don't relate to the main story, but then every once in a while he's got to come back and he's got to run into uh, Esposito's forces and and deal with him and stuff. Like, I, I like that idea. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's cool with me, man. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I'm definitely, you know, cautiously optimistic that season two will be even better than season one. And you know what this kind of reminds me of? Uh, did, did you ever see Did you ever see the cartoon droids back in the day where, where it was C, C-3PO and R2-D2? And they were kind of moving around in, like, the outer rim, like, uh, dealing with criminals? I don't think criminals. I ever saw that one. I did see Troops. Oh. The, uh, or, uh, uh, There's a yeah, little yeah. bit of that in the last There's episode. There's a little bit of that in the last episode. It was definitely... <laughs> 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 Where they're sitting there to decide what to do with Baby Yoda, and they're Can like I... literally abusing Baby Yoda. Yeah. And like in my head, I'm literally like Baby Yoda, choke a bitch. Like that's where my head was the entire time. <laughs> These two people are dead. Baby Yoda is not gonna put up with this shit. <laughs> <laughs> not how that resolves, um, you know. But uh, but a very nice. Uh, yeah, no, it was. Yeah, no, you hate them. You hate them for. Oh yeah. Living. Uh, you know, any 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 abuse to? I mean, the guy hits Baby Yoda three times, like you know, pounds him on the head, pounds him on the head. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like you know, fuck you, asshole. Mm-hmm. You are dead. Yeah, somebody's gonna kill you very painfully. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I and I like how they get killed too. It's yeah, no. very very quick and efficient. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, uh, I'll just mention one thing. Um, so I'm I'm gonna count this as the first time watch. Like I've seen bits and pieces of this throughout the years and like i know the story and everything but i sat down and watched uh the treasure of the sierra madre oh, uh, a couple of days ago that's on our list for this mm-hmm. year so yeah yeah fucking loved it i think one of the big things i love about it is like you can see where uh my favorite film of all time sorcerer drew a lot of its stuff oh, yeah. from oh, yeah. um and of course, Wages of Fear, which is Sorcerer's a remake of. I just love seeing these stories of desperate people who are like, and you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of racist to put in this in this uh, context, but you know, like the the sort of like ass end of society, basically. You know, they're they're like stuck in Mexico, and then it's kind of presented as like, oh, these these white guys who are you know at the like edge of the world, and they're about to fall off, kind of thing, right? You know, and I, I just like the idea though of like you know. They're stuck in Mexico. They can't get out. They're struggling to get out. The sheer economics of it makes it impossible for them to get out. And then they even build, basically even dig a deeper hole for themselves. So over their greed, over the treasure. And, you know, I didn't realize back in the day when I was a kid and like saw a bit of this, never, never sort of struck me how unlikable Humphrey Bogart is in this film. Like oh, where, yeah. yeah, where they just make him a piece of shit, like a total piece of shit. Well, and this is the thing they would often do, or they would at least sometimes do with kind of movie stars when they were doing kind of more serious roles is they would take somebody who's really likable as a movie star and yeah. then give them like an absolutely like, shitty thing to do. And then like charm their way through. Um, yeah. It's a really interesting, um, actually, Something we'll probably come back to <laughs> once upon a time in Hollywood, ironically enough. But uh, but yeah, no, uh, I haven't seen that film in over ten years, so I'll, I'll refrain from direct comment. Uh, it is on our kind of list of possibles for this year, and I would uh, I'd I'd love to do it. Um, yeah, so I just thought it was cool too that like John Houston shows up in the first act of it as this like rich American that Humphrey Bogart keeps running into and asking for money. <laughs> Did and, you direct that one? 
yeah, uh, and yeah, he directed it, and uh, his father is the old prospector character. Oh, I think, uh, yeah, right. The the uh, <laughs> the the, uh, the Houston's they have a long history uh-huh. in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, that family, the Houston's, you might have heard of them. <laughs> Walter Houston, yes, yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, he got you know, he was best supporting actor. Walter Houston, I believe, got best yes, supporting yes, actor. I just, yeah, uh, I just uh, saw it on the uh, on the. No, I just remembered it. No, I saw it on the Wikipedia page, which I just looked up. So, so uh, we're gonna take a quick break. We're gonna play a little bit, mu- bit of music again. The choices given to me here to to, to stick into this episode for <laughs> for music. I I might be doubling down on some stuff here, guys. So you you might have a sort of a longer musical excursion than uh, usual on our episodes. Just say some podcast promos and we're going to be back with once upon a time in Hollywood. You ungodly warlock. Hello and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I'm Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, bark, bark. <laughs> and he said, bark, bark, bark. And she said, bark, 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 bark. That's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner. The other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? <laughs> The boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, this is the Doomed Show. Is available on Hello Doomed Show. and Doomed How about throwing a little beach party for yourself and letting these people to get to know you oh so better? Hey kids, it's me, your good friend Alistair, here to tell you about a wonderful movie podcast called Get Soft with Dr. Snuggles. What happens is, every two weeks, the love of my life, Siobhan, and I are joined by a cast of friends, family, internet weirdos, and special guests to guide you through the wild and woolly world of erotic thrillers and softcore films. Everything from alien abduction, intimate secrets, to Zarita, Passions Avenger, and all points in between. Check it out now on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's that horrid man talking about? Godly warlock.
Have a dream of a huge, luscious, creamy root beer float? Well, if you haven't tried one with Mug Root Beer, start drooling now. Mug, old-fashioned root beer in the new Twist Top Bottle. After the turn of the century, in the clear blue skies over Germany, came a roar and a thunder men have never like the screaming sound of a big warbird Up in the sky, a man in a plane Baron von Richthofen was his name Eighty men tried, and eighty men died Now they're buried together on the countryside Ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty or more The bloody red baron was rolled up the score Upon a Time in Hollywood from 2019. I'm Rick Dalton. It's my pleasure, Mr. Schwartz. Call me Marvin. Put it down. That's your son? No, it's my stunt double, Cliff Booth. Last night, we watched a Rick Dalton double feature. <laughs> oh, the shooting. <laughs> I love that stuff, you know, with the killing. A lot of killing. Anybody order fried sauerkraut? No, I'm a stuntman. Look at me. So you still direct, huh? Still here. You can do anything you want to him. I hired you to be an actor, Rick. Not a TV cowboy. You're better than that. Dwine. Cut! 
just embarrass yourself like that in front of all those goddamn people. All right, what's the matter, partner? It's official, old buddy. Well, it has been. Here I am, flat on my ass. Who, who I got living next door to me? I'm Sharon Tate. I'm in the movie. You're in this? That's me. I play Miss Carlson, the klutz. Charlie's gonna dig you. And that gospel I can all change like that. Hey! You're Rick fucking Dalton. Don't you forget it. Directed and written by Quentin Tarantino. Starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Rick Dalton. Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth. Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate. Emile Hirsch as Jay Sebring. Uh, Margaret Qualey as Pussycat, Timothy Oliphant as James Stacy, Julia Butters as Trudy Frazier, Austin Butler as Tex Watson, Dakota Fanning, unrecognizable, honestly, <laughs> in this a squeaky from, yep. Bruce Dern as George Spawn, Mike Moe as Bruce Lee, Luke Perry as Wayne, Wayne Maunder, Maunder, yeah. Damian Lewis as Steve McQueen, and goddamn, I... I want a biopic of Steve McQueen now of Damian Lewis. <laughs> That's it's so fucking good. And Al Pacino is Marvin Schwartz, not Schwartz, Schwartz. <laughs> very, very, uh, <laughs> yeah. Let's just move on from that. <laughs> <laughs> we have someone from uh, Nick Reganis on IMDb saying, after a meteorotic, oh, Jesus Christ, mean words. Meteoric, thank you. Five-year rise to the top in the cutthroat world of dazzling Hollywood and long decade of treading water, the once young and popular action star Rick Dalton finds it difficult to swallow that the uh, rapacious and always hungry for new blood film industry can do without him. Sensing that his career may be nearing its end, Rick, along with his uh, sympathetic confidant and former stunt double Cliff Booth, faced the grim possibility of a mundane new life in an ever-changing 1969 Los Angeles. Now, unlike his glamorous next-door neighbors, the young director, fresh off the triumphant success of Rosemary's Baby, uh, Roman Polanski, and the rising star of The Wrecking Crew, Sharon Tate, Rick has to make a difficult decision. Of course, none of them is aware that their fates and their very lives are on a collusion course with a certain Charles Manson and his army of ferociously zealous believers. Will Hollywood ever be the same after August 9th, 1969? And I kind of like that synopsis because it kind of does what Tarantino does here for your first time view of the film. If you yeah. have not read spoilers. So I'll leave it at that for now, but, um, uh, but yeah, we'll just get into it. What, what are your sort of general thoughts on this, Dan? The irony is I think that you and I are going to land on very different places about how we feel about the film, but I think we're going to largely agree on what the film does and doesn't do. Mm-hmm. When we recorded the uh, best and worst uh, last week, I had only seen the film once. Um, I saw it theatrically, and I walked out of that film really disappointed because mm-hmm. um, my feeling, you know, 
I'm a huge Tarantino fan. Like the Tarantino kind of made me a movie nerd, like in the nineties. I'm well known for, you know, for whatever my, my strengths and weaknesses, you know, I'm, I'm, I've long been a defender of Tarantino from his detractors. I think that like he's, he has his issues, but I think he's almost always interesting enough to be kind of worth following despite his, his flaws. Right. Mm -hmm. And once upon a time in Hollywood struck me as on a first viewing as, the film that disproved that thesis that like, it really was just kind of this surface level love letter to Hollywood um, with some great performances, brilliantly yep. shot, really great. So there's great stuff in it. There's no, but like, it doesn't really kind of add to anything except for just sort of like Tarantino's masturbatory, you know, kind of fetishist version of like Hollywood 1969. I rewatched the film on this week and then sort of watched half of it again. Like I was literally rewatching it right before we um, started <laughs> recording. I was, I was kind of in the middle of it like, Oh, right. I gotta, I gotta, I got we gotta get record. <laughs> and uh, I watched some videos and kind of like read some commentary on it and, you know, sort of, there's more to it than that. I think that my frustration with it kind of comes fairly surface level. And mm -hmm. then I think Tarantino coming off of, the Weinstein scandal and coming off of the sort of uh, the stuff with Uma Thurman, like the, the, the footage that surfaced of Great. her uh, doing her own stunts, uh, you know, for, for kill bill. I feel like Tarantino sort of owed it to the world to have some kind of like commentary on that. And maybe that's unfair of me to think that, you know, he would, he would include that, that he would have something to say, but I think he generally does have something to say in his films about sort of the, the reality of the, the world around uh, his movie and um, also sort of like including Charles Manson in the film and sort of not really kind of dealing with the legacy and, you know, sort of including the, <laughs> the hippies as villains um, and, you know, so, sort of, sort of that kind of thing and, and kind of coming back to it again, I can sort of understand how he's trying to give us a little bit more nuanced look that he's the, that the people who he's actually kind of putting those lines in the mouths of are not, are not, you know, like admirable figures. But I still think there is a lot of like there are a lot of questionable decisions here that uh, he didn't have to make, and I think for all of the positives of the film, which I think we'll get into here here shortly, I still kind of come away with I'm not I'm not sure this film is really the film I would rather he have made at this point in his career, and I understand that that's a really kind of big picture criticism that mm -hmm. it's unfair for me to hold him to that standard, but I do consider him basically the greatest living director. And someone who I have loved for 25 years at this point, or, you know, over 20 years at this point, this film frustrates me. Yeah, that, that's, and so I would like to talk about all the positives in the film as well, uh, because there's a lot of other positives to talk about, but that's kind of where I land on it overall, is that it, there, there's a lot of great stuff, but it, it frustrates me because I wanted more than what I got out of this. All right. Yeah, no, I can, I can see that. I can see wanting him to, after doing like Django and doing Inglorious Bastards and having so much great stuff in both of those where it's like you can see a, a genuine sort of progression from his older stuff, you know, like almost like a sea change and then right. kind of his work. Like I can, I can definitely see like how it, it, it would be frustrating uh, especially for you, who's who's a much bigger fan of Tarantino than I am, to just oh, he's not going to necessarily go a step further. He's going to do a few of the same things, but he's going to pull back a little bit. He's going to, you know, he's he's doing a hangout movie again, where, and then this is kind of a big thing with Tarantino. Like he, I've, I've seen like interviews and stuff where, and then one of the movies he cites is Rio Bravo, 
uh, mm-hmm. where he, he likes hangout movies where you're just hanging out with the characters and just talking, listening to them talk, and you sort of become like friends with them. You know, you, you kind of uh, get into what they're doing. Where you know, Django and uh, Inglorious Bastards, they have elements of that, but they're much more pushing towards something. Like they they got they got more of a point from the beginning. I, I feel like, whereas this one, all the threads of the plot kind of they don't really come together until the end. And it's like, you're not really sure when it, where anything's going in this film for quite a while, I think. So it's much more listless. Like it, it's much more w- without the, the breaks in continuity, like uh, in, in the linear storytelling that of Pulp Fiction, it's much more like Pulp Fiction in a way where it's, you're just mostly hanging out with these characters and listening to talk to each other a lot. Right. You know, this is probably his only film where I'm more caught up in the visuals and the flow of the actual plot than I am the conversations. And but at the same time, it, it's still got that hangout movie quality, and it's still really good. It's still got its great dialogue, but I'm more interested watching like Cliff Booth just drive through Los Angeles with you know in, in his car, listening to the radio and shit like that. Like he hasn't really done visuals like that so much in his movies beforehand. Like I, I feel like it, it it feels very different in that way. Half the time he's shooting a western and slash a horror movie at the same time. In this, I find the. Uh, the sort of uh, duality of Rick Dalton's shooting this fake ass Western for TV. Uh-huh. And at the same time, Cliff Booth is like finding himself in a real Neo Western in real life where he's at the spawn ranch. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which is, which is takes place on a fake Western set. Yeah. You know, at that matter, you know, where, you know, yeah, no, yeah, no, um, there, there's definitely, there, there's this kind of duality thing kind of going on. And I, uh, Shared a video with you, pri- uh, you know, in the, mm-hmm. in the, uh, which I hope you'll uh, kind of stick in the. Um, yeah, I will. It, it's uh, good. It was a, a nice, you know, just twelve-minute kind of video that kind of talks about some of the themes and and uh, sort of the sort of this duality thing. And I think one of the things that's interesting is, you know, you do have uh, an actor and his stuntman. The actor is, uh, you know, kind of kind of uh, heralded, and he's the he's he's the guy. He's the fake guy. And then the stuntman is the one actually doing kind of the real work. And uh, you do sort of get this uh, theme through the film of, uh, you know, everything that Rick Dalton thinks he is, you know, Cliff Booth actually is yeah. in a lot of ways. Right. And I think that that's a that's an interesting dynamic. And I think there is something going on. There's also a class distinction here where, you know, you know, Rick Dalton owns his house. He owns this like gorgeous. And then I kind of looked up. There's an entry on Wikipedia for one zero zero five zero Cielo Drive. Oh, yeah. um, which is where the uh, the Tate murders happen, and so yep. he lives like uh, in modern dollars. Uh, those houses would have cost like seven hundred fifty thousand dollars, you know, <laughs> um, which gives you a sense of of you know kind of kind of what this real estate is actually well, worth. Um, yeah, he, which is like, also kind of nothing in the sense of you know kind of kind of big picture like kind of Hollywood. Uh, you know, well, it's not I like mean, Tom Cruise wouldn't live there, right? But well, know. yeah, and it's it's interesting because there's a couple times where his character mentions like he's paying for a private residence here. You know, he's paying taxes up the ass to, to keep people from, you know, driving their, their jalopies in here and, and, and yeah, no, putting absolutely. noise pollution. Right. And, and at the same time, like his career is going on the downslide a bit and he gets his new Italian wife and it's, well, I got to cut you loose cliff because I got a wife now and I can barely afford my house. And, you right. know, um, and it's, it's interesting because, you know, this is definitely uh, in part a love letter to all those sort of TV actors from the 50s and 60s and mm-hmm. who were also, you know, in films and they dabbled back and forth and a lot of their careers slowed down. Rick Dalton is definitely 
you know, uh, kind of a stand-in for a lot of real actors that uh, that sort of make him up. He's kind of the guy who didn't get to become Steve McQueen. Yeah. Because he's on a film called Bounty Law, which is like straight up, what, what the fuck was Steve McQueen's show? I can't remember it, but uh, it's the exact same kind of idea. And and he just never transitioned like Steve McQueen did into films. I'm trying to think of that fucking series. Track now. down? Track down? Might be tracked down. Doesn't sound right though. Uh, but oh, wanted dead or alive. That's it. Wanted dead or alive. Yeah. Sorry again. Stealing from Wikipedia there. <laughs> it, it's interesting. A lot of these actors, even though like their careers did slow down, a lot of them were still pretty much okay. Like they were still working constantly. They just weren't getting big movies anymore. Or anything well, like you that. lose your you lose your star power, and then you mm-hmm. go on, and you either got to do television. Although you know Rick Dalton. I mean, it's interesting. Like he was a TV actor, and a TV actor at this point. Um, you know, it's not, it's not like, you know, the Netflix era or even sort of the, the prestige, you know, kind of the HBO era or whatever, where there was a lot of respect that was kind of given to TV. I mean, this would have been like the early days and you did TV when you just couldn't break into film ultimately. Yeah. It's clear that Dalton, that Rick Dalton's kind of fictional career is very much, he did a few seasons of, of, of this TV series. And then he had a couple of years making some films that were, yeah. you know, this kind of like early exploitation, kind of late fifties, early sixties stuff. And then he just kind of stalls and yeah. um, he ends up kind of doing his thing. And, uh, you know, you, there are a lot of actors who, you know, we've talked about a lot of them on this podcast. Yeah. You know, and it, it is in a way, it is weird. Like this film is, is kind of a, uh, in a, in a weird way, sort of the uh, uh, sort of the filmic version of listening to this podcast in a way, in terms of like our influences and the stuff that we kind of talk about all the time. It's also very similar. I mean, I don't know if you were kind of an accolade of the true Hollywood story like I was kind of in the 90s, um, mm-hmm. you know, where they would kind of do a lot of these, you know, pick an actor and kind of do their do their life story. And so many of them have that same kind of, you know, you, you hit you hit it, you know, you work for a while, you hit it big. You do a TV show, you do some movies, you do whatever, and then you just kind of like trail off, and then you do twenty years of like I occasionally do some stuff, and it's a very, it's a very, it's a very common pattern, basically. You're you're ending up like you end up in the nineteen nineties, sixty five, and you're doing like a uh, a cheap ass TV game show that's like based on Pictionary or something like that. Like that's right. where your career goes, you know? Yeah, you've got you've got that like one big star turn on an episode of Law and Order in nineteen ninety three. And that's your like last, uh, you know, big role or whatever. And, or and, Quentin Tarantino finds you and re- resurrects your career. <laughs> well, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of meta here, you know, particularly yeah. kind of like on that, you know, two and a half rewatch. I was kind of like rewatching and going like, well, Al Pacino's character is kind of Tarantino. You know, he's kind of saying to Rick Dalton, um, "Hey, it's it could be Tarantino and John Travolta." And like, you know, for for Pulp Fiction at that time, like. I don't know if you know this story, like <laughs> Tarantino literally like, went to John Travolta's house mm. and like he brought the like Welcome Back Cotter. I think there was like a board game for Welcome Back Cotter or something. And he was literally like playing the game with him and like cast him in, like said, I'd really like to work with you and just kind of convinced him to come be in this weird little movie and like kind of disappear into this like weird hairstyle and stuff. You know, and you, and you sort of see like there there is a little bit of a there is a little bit of that, and like Travolta was nothing in 1994. You know, I mean, yeah, he had come off of Look Who's Talking, but he was, you know, he was somebody who had had like highs and lows in his career and all that sort of thing, and then he goes and becomes a huge a huge movie star for another few years until he crashed and burned again, which is just always going to happen. You know, now he's in the uh, in the fan, which I saw, which is <laughs> yeah. 
People can't see my reaction right now because yeah, that that, that, that was kind of just high eyebrows and like eh, you know whatever. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so yeah, there's there's a lot of that kind of going on, and uh, you know, the, all of that is great. I don't have any complaints about any of that. I mean, just as a movie, if you just kind of handed this to me and, and said, you know, watch it, uh, I mean, it's fine. I think that there's some weird shit here. One of the things that we know about Tarantino's kind of work process is that <laughs> he spends a lot of time on his scripts, like in terms of like kind of writing and rewriting and kind of reconceptualizing. And uh, apparently he had kind of had the ending of this film first, which really speaks volumes, honestly, <laughs> that like he, he knew the ending and he knew that like back in like when he was making Inglorious Bastards and he wanted to make a film about these murders and then sort of worked backwards. And apparently, you know, even in like 2017, they were like looking at Brad Pitt to be the investigator who was going to come and investigate these murders and that sort of thing. And um, that's a very different film. Like, you know, that is not the film yeah. we got. And we know from, uh, you know, Django Unchained and Inglorious Bastards and, and Kill Bill that yeah, all this stuff kind of got worked around and worked around and worked around in, in the script stages. Well, he, um, uh, he wrote this like as a full length novel. Did he not before he finally did the he screenplay? Did that for Hateful Eight, I don't know if he did it for this one. I think he did for this too. Like he was originally going to do Hateful Eight as a novel, and then like you know, just decided to make it a movie because that's what you get to do if you're quitting, yeah. you know, right? But, uh, but I guess like uh, from our, what I recall from some of the trivia, the fact that Brad Pitt that like it took so long to get Brad Pitt into this because he didn't want to do the detective bullshit or whatever, like what he was originally they were thinking of casting him as. Right. When they were in original talks, and it's like, oh well, we'll get you to be a stunt man. And then I think he, I think there was some work done with Burt Reynolds uh, before he died. They were originally going to hire him to do um, uh, George Spawn. George Spawn, and yeah. then he died uh, before he could actually film anything. But but he wrote uh, he wrote some like apparently Burt Reynolds gave Tarantino some lines to like throw into this um the uh the, the I, line... it would be delightful if that was burt reynolds last performance honestly it know? would be yeah can't you see i'm fucking blind <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, no it, it's too bad it didn't happen um almost like the i've seen this 10 times now uh from wow. the time i watched it uh today makes number 10 there's a scene where uh timothy uh oliphant's character is driving off the lot in his motorcycle and he kind of looks so much like Burt Reynolds in that lighting and everything going away from there. Like that era Burt Reynolds is like, Oh, maybe that's a nod to Burt Reynolds. I was like, Oh no, it's Timothy Oliphant's character driving away. And then that character, like the, the real life guy got in an accident and um, like lost his arm and his fucking leg and can, <laughs> continued to work though, apparently for a while. But yeah, um, well, <laughs> So, so, so many like just very subtle nods to like reality, yeah. right? You know, uh, um, but I, I do want to, I do want to push back on the uh, the idea that this movie has like a dour look at hippies. The, the movie switches between different characters' perspectives. So when you're getting Rick's perspective, and he's a decent actor, um, he's he's kind of like in that slightly above William Shatner kind of oeuvre kind of thing where he's, he can be really great if you, if you give him the right role. And then most of the time he's just okay. Or he might be really fucking hammy. Like he might right. be flame throwing a bunch of Nazis with an eye patch, you know, he's very insecure. He's a fucking asshole. He's an alcoholic and his insecurities come out in, in the way he acts towards people. So 
he he looks at these Manson people as you dirty fucking hippies. Like that's his perspective. And I mean, the Manson family, not really hippies. Like they're they're well, they mean, might have started as hippies, but they're they're cultists more than anything else. Like, right. I mean, you know, they 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 get coded as hippies, and they definitely kind of start as that, and then they kind of change over into something else yeah um which the film really doesn't i mean it's really not about manson and the family at all well no I mean, it, it kind of uses them as it's kind of like the the kind of plot points as much as anything um again like i was saying you get different perspectives from different people like i'm sure we'll talk about the bruce lee thing here in a minute like there's different perspectives from different characters when it comes to bruce lee as well but sharon tate like you see several days in her life in this film where she's just doing stuff She's just driving around, doing stuff, walking around, doing stuff. She picks up a hippie, has a great conversation with her, gives her a ride, drops her off. I mean, there's nothing negative about hippies there. And and she seems to, like, embrace both sides of, of the coin here. Um, sure. I mean, you know, Sharon Tate is certainly, I mean, is kind of, I mean, I don't want to say an enigma. I mean, she's kind of a, she's kind of not a character. Um, you know, like. She, she's played by Margot Robbie, and Margot Robbie is amazing. And so, yeah, kinda, you know, like like she doesn't even she doesn't have a lot of lines. She doesn't have a lot of you know. Uh, she's mostly just kind of a a warm presence that we kind of get in the movie as a kind of a contrast to these a uh, couple of old deadbeats. You know what I mean? I kind of I, I I know there's like actually that's probably one of the biggest criticisms when when people are pushing back against this film. That you know, oh, Margot Robbie wasn't given enough to do. She's just kind of there. She she doesn't really do anything in the film, and I kind of like that a lot. Like I actually like that decision a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's kind of a, actually a brave decision to to I do mean, that. It's, it's an explicit decision by Tarantino. Like yeah. he decided, like I don't I don't want to kill her at the end. You know, spoiler well, alert for both <laughs> real life and the film. You know, well, I mean, she's uh, she's almost exclusively remembered as a murder victim. Like that's what right. most people think of when she, they think of her. And yeah, she doesn't have a lot of lines, but in this fictional world, in this fantasy alternate universe Hollywood, where Sharon Tate doesn't get murdered, uh, the days that we see of her in this, she's just going about her normal thing. Like, it's, you know, it's just another day. Any other day, she goes to the movies. She actually has a future. Like, she has days that she can just waste, like everybody else, you know, and just do whatever we do during our days. Like, I liked her days. I liked seeing her pick up the hippie. Uh, I liked her buying the book for Roman Polanski that in real life he had been, the made a, <laughs> Yeah, then he made a movie out of. Uh, Clue Gallagher, Hollywood legend there, is a, the fucking uh, bookstore owner. There's the fucking Maltese Falcon, the actual Maltese Falcon in that fucking store, the actual prop. <laughs> um, yeah, she doesn't have a lot of lines, but the physical performance. Watching her walk around the theater and being very hesitant about going up to see her own movie. And then she gets into her own movie and seeing her how thrilled she is by everyone enjoying her performance. Yeah, I like yeah. that a lot. And like just no, it's, the, it's it's incredibly enjoyable. It just sort of yeah. like like I'm I'm just saying I'm glad that it didn't end up at the end of the film with Roby like uh stabbing uh Linda Kasabian in the face <laughs> or something like that. Like or you know, bashing ragdoll physics Sam Raimi style uh <laughs> zombies into mush. Yeah, uh, which is what Brad Pitt does. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like uh you know, yeah, we can talk about that or not i don't know i don't know how i feel about like so some of the, you know um anyway um 
Well, you know, I mean, that, that's the I, uh, that's the Hitler and his buddies getting chewed up by a machine gun moment in from Inglorious <laughs> Bastards. Same idea, like where he just goes so over the top, or Django right. Unchained, where he's shooting motherfuckers and they're spurting torrents of blood. Same idea, right? Well, or uh, you know, Kill Bill, he kind of does the same thing. You know, he's, he's always kind of played with this sort of fake reality with with these yeah. things. I do think it kind of, I mean, there there is a you know my dog is going to chew your balls off and I'm we're going to listen to you like scream for, you know, three minutes while at the same time, you know, 55 year old, you know, super muscular Brad Pitt literally bashes a young woman's face into a mantle for, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's, there's ultraviolence and then there's just sort of this like, you know, in a film, which is so kind of in love with this kind of old school Hollywood thing. And like that, that's so easily, at least on its surface, I mean, I think there's more going on, but at least on its surface, it's kind of about like, you know, Hollywood was better when, you know, men were men, you know, so, sort of idea. It uh, It's just difficult to watch, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, and especially after a film which is kind of like built around this, I don't want to say reality, but this sort of, you know, fairly subdued tone. And then to kind of go into like, not just sort of ragdoll zombie Sam Raimi style, but like really extreme <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're like, we're going to roast somebody alive with a flamethrower <laughs> and like watch them like flop around for a while. It's, it's, it's a, it's a big tonal shift. Yeah, it is. Um, <laughs> a film like this. And, and, uh, you know, whereas in Hateful Eight, he kind of does the same thing, but that's also a film that sort of, you do that around the midway point, And then you've got, you know, sort of another hour and a half of dealing with the consequences of that. Whereas in this film, it kind of ends. And I would like to say that there are rumors of like a sort of a four hour version of this. I and saw um, that, yeah. I would be really interested in seeing what got left Same. on the room floor, uh, you know, and, and I think that 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 a lot of my kind of issues with the film might be dealt with in the longer cut because it does feel like there's a lot of stuff that kind of gets like picked up and dropped as well. Um, there are a lot yeah. of kind of little little bits and pieces of this where like maybe there's a little bit more Sharon Tate, maybe like we go to the Playboy Mansion. And it's kind of like we get to see Steve McQueen mm-hmm. kind of give us the backstory on these characters and we dance around the Playboy Mansion for, you know, five minutes or not. Like, it's not even that long. I mean, it's it's, it's very it's like brief. three quick. minutes or yeah. something, yeah. It's very, very quick. And again, like, <laughs> there's no sort of interrogation of what that means of, like, being in the Playboy Mansion in 1969. I mean, both, I mean, Sharon Tate uh, posed for, like, appeared in Playboy, mm-hmm. um, as did Elk Summer, who is the lead yeah. in, uh, what's the film? Um, uh, the one that The one that she goes to see in the film. Which uh, I hope. Oh, the Wrecking Crew. The Wrecking Crew. Elk Summer was also in Playboy. Uh, you know, it was it was kind of and and you know, kind of sort of sort of the the gravity that that, that has and sort of like this moment of like, oh, we're in the Playboy Mansion and it's great that we and they shot it at the actual Playboy mm-hmm. Mansion and that's great. But again, there there is this kind of lack of like kind of reconciliation of like what that means in 2019 versus 1969. You know, it is yeah, that's it, true. It isn't it isn't talking about that at all. Which isn't to say that the film has to do that. But I mean, Roman Polanski is a named character in this film. Yeah, and there's no there's he's just a guy. He's just Sharon Tate's husband. You know, he's just this like kind of kind of world class filmmaker and. We as sort of like, you know, sophisticated critics, I don't want to, you know, like we're, we're the elites in here, right? Like yeah. we will understand this, right? And we can kind of approach that in, in our way and kind of like make decisions about how we feel about that. And and that's fine. But again, in the in the aftermath of sort of Weinstein and all that other stuff to kind of put 
Roman Polanski as a character in your film and never to deal with all the bullshit around Roman Polanski. It'd be like, and then Woody Allen shows up, you know, and he's like, hey, check it out, my little oh, there's Bill, Bill Cosby. There's Bill yeah, Cosby, Bill Cosby shows great. up. I just got I just got done. I just got the script for Mother Jugs and Speed. Let's let's talk about like you know, like let's uh, have yeah, a couple no. drinks, ladies, at the Playboy Mansion where <laughs> exactly, he... exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, there is this sense of you know where the film isn't like it, it's not like it has to sort of like make him the bad guy. It's not like it has to be about that, mm-hmm. but to not deal with that at all in any way to just sort of gloss over it. It does feel like kind of, we're going to look at the nostalgia and we're going to kind of not look at the, at the reality uh, on any level. You know? Well, I feel like in, in the, in this case where he's presenting the whole once upon a time thing in the first place, where he's alluding to like a once upon a time, in the West once upon mm-hmm. a time in America, where it's much more of a, kind of semi fairy tale kind of mythological take on the tropes and stuff of the sort of genres they were doing here it's it's more of a mythological take on hollywood and where sharon tate is kind of placed as she's kind of the jill character for once upon a time in the in the west not as you know not as assertive or strong she's not actually like partaking in the actual plot of the movie really right. she's just she's in, not in the narrative yeah. but she does exist as this sort of like other She's supposed, vision, right? she's supposed to be the coming together point of old Hollywood and new Hollywood and it's supposed yeah. to be the brighter future and all that, right? And I like that stuff. And the fact that he's slotting her in that sort of position kind of makes it impossible for it to really dig deep into like, uh, oh, you're married to Roman Polanski, who's a rapist piece of shit. And, and you can't really go into those problems so much without making her more of a grounded character that suddenly ends up stabbing Linda Kasabian in the face at the end of the film or something <laughs> right, like right, that. Right. right? Yeah, no, or, so um, I don't know. Like, again, I'm not asking it to be what it's not. I'm just sort mm-hmm. of like saying like all this stuff, like he could have easily just sort of fictionalized it. Right. Like yeah. he could have easily, you know, he's making up the history as it goes along anyway. I mean, he's kind of using real figures. Um, some of whom were like who are now completely obscure and were obscure to me until I like looked at them, you know. Yeah. Some of these like TV actors, I'm like, I don't know. I, I never watched, you know, like Westerns from 1968. Um, <laughs> you know, TV Westerns from that era. I watched um, the first know. episode of Lancer. Oh, nice. Nice. It's um, it's it's fairly close, but it's the way he shoots it, like when you actually see it in the film, he shoots it like a modern western, like he's been doing like Django and stuff like that. Like he kind of yeah. shoots it that way. Where, you know, it, it if you watch the actual Lancer episode, it's very much 1969 TV, right? You know, yeah, it's very locked off, very you mm-hmm. know, kind of straightforward. I, I mean, I, I can imagine what that looks like. I mean, I've seen TV from that era, obviously. but he gets he gets a lot close. Like also the thing he does with the uh, episode of FBI that uh, Rick is on, which by the way, that that episode that was Burt Reynolds in that character in real life. That was Burt Reynolds. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say this. Rick Dalton does a better jump out of the back of that truck than Burt Reynolds does in the actual episode. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, no. Um, that sequence uh, of the... Well, it's all about... The film is constantly kind of drawing attention to its own metatextual nature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's doing it in a lot... Of, like, even in the sort of, like, um, where Sharon Tate goes and watches herself in a movie. A, she's watching herself in the movie. And B the version of her on film alternates between Margot yep. Robbie kind of digitally inserted into the film and the original footage of Sharon Tate in the, in the film. Right. You know, mm-hmm. because the fight sequence is all Sharon Tate 
and um you know we're just sort of like and, and so so there is this sort of uh recognition that the audience sort of knows and doesn't know and i think that there's a there's a you know a com- a wait are you are you saying are you saying that margot Robbie was digitally put into some of the footage of that film because i thought it was all sharon tate was it all sharon tate i thought i'm pretty the, sure it was i thought the actual um I haven't seen the film. I thought that the dialogue sequences were actually Margot Robbie. No, I'm I'm fairly sure that was Sharon. Uh, oh, okay. The facial okay. structure and everything, like you know, the, she's got I, the big glasses on, so it's hard. Yeah, I, mean, I was assuming it was. Um, I was assuming it was Margot Robbie. So, I mean, if it's all Sharon Tate, then that's even more kind of interesting that they decide to just kind of play the original film without that. Um, isn't it? Uh, Boone Well or someone kind of does did that sort of same thing at one point. I, I I heard that somewhere where characters watching themselves on screen and it's like the real actor and then it's you know um, the person playing that actor watching it like I, it's something that's been done before I think in an older okay. film. No, I I would I would certainly believe it. I I I had thought that they had kind of cut between that. I thought that was Margot Robbie inserted into it. Um, you know, if if it's not. Um, you know that that's me just kind of <laughs> not paying close enough attention. And having, <laughs> I have a slight face blindness anyway, so uh, yeah. you know. Uh, but I mean, it, Margot Robbie does a good enough job where you just don't really notice because she doesn't really look like Sharon Tate all that no, much. Sharon Tate's a much thinner yeah, face, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, no. Well, it's... But but so so in that sequence is intercut with the the sequence of Rick Dalton filming Lancer mm-hmm. and that was that's a very kind of it's shot in a modern sense but then yeah. like at a certain point but it's all but it's acted in the kind of very like you know late 60s western sense right and so it kind of looks a little bit like deadwood in terms of the way it's shot but it's <laughs> yeah. very like stilted acting and everything and uh, <laughs> and then it's at a certain point they stop uh filming and then you know where he loses his lines and they, yep. you know, kind of roll back. And so and so there is this kind of constant recognition of we're watching a film. It's very, I mean, again, it is just kind of fundamentally metatextual. And I think that, like, intercutting it in that way and kind of, like, treating it like that, I mean, it is calling attention to itself. And it's doing some interesting things in terms of, like, asking us to respond to the way that we kind of respond to movies. And asking us to kind of think about the way that these things are made. Whereas if he'd done something that looked a lot more... Um, authentic for the period like the way they would have actually shot it it would Mm -hmm. be more kind of documentary style yeah but it would feel more isolating for the audience and you wouldn't kind of get involved in the in the sort of emotional stakes of dalton's care or the dicaprio's character in the same way (laughs) you notice when he first showed up on set and he's 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 sitting in wardrobe he's he's sitting in the chair and timothy oliphant's character comes up to him they you know introduce himself oh man rick dalton you're great man i've seen you in these movies i heard you almost got the great escape it's like no i never even talked to john sturgis you know so i didn't really almost get the great escape and but he has a little fantasy where it's like kind of thinking like man if i was in steve mcqueen's place you know and his face is digitally put on there and then so he's he's just kind of talking to this new upcoming actor. He's the, he's one of these guys that Al Pacino says, well, yeah, they're going to put you up against him in the show. He's going to beat the shit out of Rick Dalton. He's not beating the shit out of a character. And right. the audience responds to that. So he's he's kind of having a stilted conversation with this guy. And they're just like trading, you know, uh, behind the scenes work stuff. 
Tarantino cuts like twice in that scene where he just cuts out probably like five minutes of their dialogue. And it's like a harsh cut. Like at one point, Timothy Olyphant's cat is off and it's back on. And it's, <laughs> it's just like, like, we don't need to see this. And it's, it's a fun little joke that he sort of puts in there. It's like, we don't need to see these guys bullshitting. Like it's, right, it's right, fine. Yeah. Despite the fact that this is like a big hangout movie. We don't, we don't need to watch all this. Right? Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. No, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff in that. And, and I'm, I'm hoping to kind of revisit it, uh, you know, uh, you know, 10 times possibly. And, uh, you know, <laughs> And kind of, kind of, kind of look for for details like that. I mean, again, it, it is, it is really enjoyable mm-hmm. as as a film. I think there's a there's a lot there's a lot to like about it. I do like this kind of narrative. I do like these characters. I do like um, the idea of kind of following these people and kind of like s- selling this world. And you know, again, one of the things that I think um, frustrates me, and this is completely Tarantino's fault, deciding to make his film after the other side of the wind was finally released. <laughs> because it turns out that the other side of the wind kind of is kind of about the same idea about this transition period was shot around the time that this transition was happening when people were recognizing it and then got kind of got buried for for 30 years yeah you know um and then and then comes out uh you know like like a year before this this film does um but only on netflix and so you know no you know Nobody except for like nerds like you and me yeah. paid that much attention to it. I would love to see a double feature of those two films, honestly. Oh my I god, yeah, that would be uh, a, a really amazing uh, kind of experience and, and a really great. Um, it's a really great study in contrast as well between you know two people kind of telling a very similar story but from different eras, because mm-hmm. Wells kind of coming from that uh, period. Um, and kind of coming out of this kind of old Hollywood series, you know, who worked in a lot of these like shitty productions <laughs> for decades and trying to fund his thing and was kind of, you know, on that downslope for decades, uh, you know, kind of getting stuff made as he could. Doesn't doesn't have any nostalgia for this at all. Obviously, he wouldn't have nostalgia at that point. But mm. he's got he's got a real frustration for this whole structure. And ironically, he probably would have done great if he kind of lived into the 90s or if he if he'd been around for the more independent production era when, yeah. you know, and certainly today, if he could shoot things digitally, you know, the Orson Welles of today, you know, would, would be going off doing his own thing and being and doing some amazing work and able to kind of raise money as, as, he, as he needed to. And so I, th- I think that's an interesting contrast, right, between, you know, Tarantino yeah. kind of looking back and going like, oh, wasn't this era great? Um, whereas, you know, this other, you know, brilliant filmmakers kind of like, yeah, not, 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 not so much, you know, depending on, <laughs> depending on whether you get the money or not, you know? Um, but I think, I think there is, uh, you know, there, there is a love letter. I, <laughs> I love that like uh, Dalton is like, yeah, I did like four Italian movies in mm-hmm. six months and uh, you know, kind of falls in love with, with like, he, he's like, what am I going to go be in Italian movies? And uh, you know, nobody likes these spaghetti Westerns. And, yeah. uh, you know, um, <laughs> like how many of them have you seen? One, two, I've seen enough. I've seen enough, <laughs> I've seen enough to know they're a farce. They like, even... It is that like I'm in Hollywood and Hollywood is the, is the center of the world. And then so many of these guys kind of went on and did like, oh, we we're going to do some, some Italian, we're going to do European cinema and it's not really going to kind of show up in, in America. Mm-hmm. Except for in kind of, you know low rent theaters or whatever but like it's going to be a it made it made fucking clint eastwood a fucking big star like it Absolutely. made him the big star he is but yeah well, but you yeah, know I mean, this is set like after the good the bad and the ugly yeah <laughs> you know, this is you know clint eastwood was uh, you know i guess uh, you know 
it is you know Clint Eastwood is is the big up and comer at this point. He was he was a huge star. Um, I mean, it's, yep. it's kind of before he really hit it big with like Dirty Harry or whatever. But but certainly he's um, you know. I mean, it does. The film does kind of massage some of those details, but but we can read that as is it's really kind of Rick Dalton's prejudices speaking there. You know, his oh yeah, because he's because he's an awful person. Like he's, he's no no, he's, he's a, a disgusting human being. He's a disgusting human being, and, and he and, wins at the end. Look at that. He's yeah, gonna go. He's going to be in the new Polanski movie. He's uh, and he's you know he's probably gonna uh, he's probably not gonna get he's not gonna get Chinatown. Cause, uh, because <laughs> oh, he's because, nowhere near good enough. <laughs> no, well, and also Jack Nicholson came up with most a lot of the money for that, apparently. So, oh, okay, uh, okay, yeah. yeah. So, um, he's not getting Chinatown. Jesus, what would he get of Polanski's? I don't know. Oh, yeah, I guess, I guess we're gonna have to <laughs> think about that, you know. Oh, god, open it up Polanski's Wikipedia page here, mm. and of course, it literally in the like opening sequence, <laughs> you know. Like, it talks about trying to it talks about drugging. There's literally a you know link drugging and raping a 13 year old girl. Yeah, yeah, that's you know like yeah, not not exactly a hidden there. Uh, so Macbeth in '71, he could have he could have yeah he could do that. Uh, and then something called What, a morbid absurdist comedy based on the themes of Alice in Wonderland. Mm. I don't know. Dalton would be like, I'm I ain't if listen Roman. I ain't in for this screwy weird shit, this hippie stuff. <laughs> you put fringe on my jacket? I am not. I am not into this. You got me in some psychedelic movie or some shit. Yeah. No. It basically, like Dalton convinces Polanski to make a Western. <laughs> <laughs> and Polanski gets on to make, like, you know, low budget Westerns for three years. <laughs> you know? Makes a makes a makes a fucking war movie. Listen, I already got a flamethrower. <laughs> it works. <laughs> you know the story. Now, you leave that little girl name. alone. You leave yeah. that little girl alone, Roman. Yeah, there's a I good got me story. a flamethrower. <laughs> hey, isn't that? Hey, actually, that's if if you wanted to go further with this shit, like <laughs> if, if you want to do the sequel to this. And you want to rewrite history? Rick Dalton stops Robin Polanski from raping that poor little yeah. girl. <laughs> God. There you oh, go. There. We need to we need to officially leave this topic behind <laughs> before we go into some really terrible. <laughs> uh, um, I think uh, one of my favorite things that just makes me smile all the time is Cliff and his dog. Oh just, God! Yeah, no. Like that—that's also hangout movie. He's just hanging out with his dog. I'm glad the dog didn't die too. I was like really worried. There was like, oh, one of these like Tex Watson's going to shoot the dog or something. Like, oh, don't fucking do it. Don't you fucking. Do it. Instead, instead, the dog gets a nice snack at the end. Yeah, <laughs> pork and beans. You know. <laughs> no, whenever, whenever my dog looks at me, so my dog has a nasty habit of like. Whenever I blow my nose, the dog is like, I want that snot rag so bad right now. And she looks at me and does this like little licking noise. Mm-hmm. And I always think of, you know, the dog licking his lip, licking his chops when he's like making um, the dog food for the thing. And I'm just like, yeah, this is this is not the same thing, but it does. Um, it is very reminiscent of this. Fucking fictional cans of dog food he puts in there too the the like the rat flavor the raccoon flavor (laughs) (laughs) which is great which is great stuff but Um, i mean also cliff like even though he's the more likable 
he's a fucking dangerous, like murderous badass, like deep down. Like he's very zen and easygoing. Like he's like Billy Jack or something like that. Where yeah, like, yeah. You could, and I guess they based his character a bit off Billy Jack. Like he's wearing like moccasins at one point and shit like that. Like Billy Jack did. So you can see where that sort of influence comes through. But um, my favorite Brad Pitt performance, I think like, I, I don't think he's done a better one. Could, could be. He He's, he's great here. I'd have to, I'd have to kind of sit and think on that, what my favorite uh, Brad Pitt performance is. But it, it's definitely up there. And Brad Pitt is also like 56 years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I love that uh, Dalton describes him as he's a goddamn war hero yeah. um, at a certain point. <laughs> and it is like, which war exactly? Um, I mean, Korean. Korea? Korea? Or I mean, if if we're assuming that, that, um, that Brad Pitt's character is supposed to, that Cliff is supposed to be the same age as Brad Pitt, he could have been in World War II. He would have been young. He would have been, yeah. you know, like 20 years old or whatever, but he definitely could have served in World War II. Um, but yeah, no, Korea kind of kind of makes a little bit more sense because he's still, like, he's been working with Dalton. He's been working with Dalton for several years. And so it's definitely too, you know, he he couldn't be a Vietnam veteran, so it would have to be, you know, yeah. or, or it's Dalton just bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, you like Cliff, like Cliff's background is so nebulous. Like no one really knows. You know, there's a story that he killed his wife, and we get this like shot of what maybe he killed her. You know, because he's he's sitting on the boat there with her, with the spear gun pointed at her, and it's like, oh shit, did we get like a Natalie Wood dying on on a, on a boat? Kind I, of. Thing? I think it's pretty well implied that he killed his wife. I I, I mean, it's 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 iffy, but. Based on what the film shows us, it, it does not make us think like, "Oh no, this is a good guy who definitely did not kill his." Wife. He certainly has no problem with like murdering a woman that's coming at him with a knife. So, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> there is a little bit of like, you know, I am clearly way stronger than you, and we see in the um, completely unproblematic sequence where he kicks Bruce Lee's ass um, that uh, he can, he could, he could definitely have disarmed her if if that had been the. Uh, well, he got he got on he got on a he he got like a sort of draw with Bruce Lee. And, and I mean, to be fair, that's Cliff Booth's perspective. He don't like Bruce Lee. So of course he's going to imagine it where he throws Bruce Lee into a fucking car door and makes like a human sized dent into it. I mean, I I think it's pretty obvious that that's supposed to be taken as like, yeah, Cliff's uh, reimagining this a little bit, you know? Sure. Okay. We, we can take that. I still think that like the film, like, uh, I understand the Green Hornet, and we're kind of referencing the Green Hornet, and we're going to do Bruce Lee. Um, Chuck Norris was right there. You could have just used Chuck Norris. Nobody <laughs> would care if he'd kicked Chuck Norris's ass in 1969. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, that's true. And you could have easily had, like, you know, oh, he's this Taekwondo guy who's walking through the set one day, and he's just, or you just have, like, some big guy. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be Bruce Lee. And the fact that it's Bruce Lee, I mean, it connects to the Sharon Tate story and kind of like mm-hmm. connects the narratives a little bit. But I still think the uh, the idea that this guy, even if we are going to kind of portray it as, um, you know, this is sort of an exaggerated memory. Um, I think I think showing him like the guy who kicked Bruce Lee's ass, you know, on on screen, it just it comes across as a little bit a little bit racist, just a little bit racist, yeah. um, you know, but. You know we can we 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 can we can kind of move along from that. Yeah, yeah, but uh, I don't know if I have necessarily anything else to say about it other than I love it. Um, I'm I think I still like Jackie Brown more, but this is right up there. This is like number two for me now with with uh, Tarantino. So 
I mean, I've routinely said my favorite film of all time is Inglorious Bastards. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, um, something that I've said. I find more things to love in that film every every time I watch it. And if this is that for you, I you know, there's no argument for me on that. I will kind of continue to watch this. I will be interested, especially if they do like a like it does feel like Tarantino's trying to make like four part Netflix miniseries now. Yeah. You know, like it does feel like maybe maybe he's just kind of like outgrown the you know the, the film experience a little bit. Um, I still mm-hmm. haven't seen the Hateful Eight um, Netflix expanded version, um, which I I should put on my list to do at some point in the near future. But you know, no, I would I would love to see the expanded version and kind of see what what we lost from the original version. Yeah, uh, or from from the in the, in the theatrical version. And sort of see if like some of these some of these issues are addressed a little bit more, but um, I suspect it's going to be just kind of more of the sort of like '60s fetishism stuff. And um, probably stuff, and again, all this stuff is great. Like it all mm-hmm. looks amazing. The, the fact that they didn't use CG to sort of recreate Hollywood in the same. Oh no, they rebuilt all like they just put fronts on all the streets. This, yeah, they, this they re- rebuilt re- like this huge like section, and I mean like. Just again from the Wikipedia page for this film, this is sort of an amazing uh, little little sequence here. Tarantino's director was to turn the Los Angeles of 2018 into Los Angeles of 1969 without CGI. It required months of collaboration with city planners, business owners, set decorators, and construction crews. That will never happen again. Like you, you know, that will never happen again because they had to oh. shut down the main drag in the summertime at the height of tourist season to do this shit. Only. Tarantino has the yeah. has the ability to actually make that happen, and uh, he could only do it once. Um, it mm-hmm. does remind me a little bit of the, like Cameron Crowe shut down uh, New York Times, like Times Square, uh, New York, Times Square in New York uh, for Vanilla Sky. Like oh, the way yeah. they filmed that, uh, you know, like super creepy sequence was, you know, a director just went in and like, yeah, we're just going to shut this down, but they can only do it for like thirty five minutes or something like <laughs> that, you know? Um, yeah, so. Um, so yeah, no, there's a lot of a lot to love about this. I find myself disappointed by it, but I'm mm-hmm. liking it more the more I kind of watch it and sort of realize what it is. And I think the Tarantino's films are meant to be seen multiple times. Like this is not. Um, oh. and so um and so I think um, you know, I'm willing to say that like maybe my my immediate response was a little bit unfair, but I think my disappointment was real and it's honest. So yeah. yeah, no, I don't disagree with that. Just try to jump through a little bit of trivia here. Uh <laughs> oh, is there trivia for this movie? Yeah, just a teeny bit. <laughs> So one of the Italian films that Rick stars in is directed by Antonio Margariti mm-hmm. uh, in Inglorious Bastards, uh, 2009. Anton- Antonio Margariti is the alias used by Donnie Donowitz to sneak into the premiere of Nation's Pride. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, no. And, and Antonio Margariti, I believe, is a real name of somebody, right? Like, um, Maybe? I don't, I don't, I don't know. Uh, this is Luke Perry's last film. Perry suffered massive stroke in February of uh, this year, or last year, actually, now, um, and died uh, March 4th. So Scott Lancer is an homage to Wayne uh, Meander and his role in Lancer. Meander died in 2018, 10 days after filming wrapped on this film. Antonio Margheriti was an actual uh, Italian filmmaker. Of oh, America. okay. That works. Uh you directed a film called Dynamite Joe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. 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 Dynamite Joe. Fucking Christ. They they, they credit it to the, what confused me. They credit it to Sergio Carbucci in, oh, okay. in, in the movie. I guess. Let's see here. I already said the Maltese Falcon flashback shows Rick Dalton training to use a flamethrower and recalling from the heat uh, it generates. This was Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's genuine reaction to the flamethrower. Uh, Tarantino thought it was funny and left it in the movie. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> is there a way to do something about that heat? Uh, it's a flamethrower. <laughs> but uh, yeah, apparently, apparently Tarantino um, opened this up more to impro- improvisation than uh, he tended to do in his in his films. I guess uh, a lot lot less of his script being stuck to on this. So. Uh, there you and go. You kind of get that in, in some of the sequences, like the kind of the long car ride sequence between Pussycat and Brad Pitt. You, you, it feels a little bit less, you know, rapid fire Tarantino dialogue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, budget for this was ninety million, and it's it's made like three hundred something million at this point. I forgot to put down the actual uh total i i had I, I took it from imdb and it had like three different fucking totals it had like the opening united states uh gross um uh weekend gross and the total gross in the united states and the cumulative uh worldwide gross so uh it is like 370 something 372.4 million per wikipedia as of right now yeah so i think that's his most successful film at this point maybe? i think um I think uh, Django Unchained made more. Okay, but it's still for him. That's no. That's this a... this would be this would be easily number two if it's not the highest. Yeah, yeah. Django Unchained made like four hundred twenty-five billion dollars. Ah. Um, that was that was a massive blockbuster. Had Django Unchained not uh, made that money, uh, he wouldn't be making this today. <laughs> yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Because someone would take one look at the script and be like, "What the fuck are you, you doing?" Ninety-five million dollars to do this? Yes, yeah. I do. Um, and it's very possible this is going to win Best Picture this year. Like, I'm, I mean, you know, we, we haven't seen the Oscar nominations yet, but yeah, like there's there's every possibility they'll that you know because it's getting all kinds of awards and you know from from you know. Well, I think I think Brad Pitt should be a shoe in for a fucking nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Like, yeah. Or even, I mean, I would argue he's best actor in this. Yeah, that's you know. just true. That's true. They'll probably get. I mean, he's, he's it's a, you know, yeah, it's probably best supporting based on there are all these like kind of unclear rules that the academy goes by in terms of determining um, who gets what. But yeah, no, uh, maybe or maybe it'll go to uh, Kevin Smith's daughter for uh, Manson Cultist Number Three because. <laughs> <laughs> Because one thing I did mention is like there's so many like children of like famous actors and stuff. Oh, in this fucking I was film just looking at parts. that in the in the yeah. in the Wikipedia list. Um, Lena Dunham is one of them. Yeah, um, Madison Beatty, who is uh, could be Warren Beatty's daughter or granddaughter. Jesus, got to be granddaughter. I hope it's yeah. granddaughter. Maya Hawk, who's uh, Ethan Hawk and Uma Thurman's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. God, yeah, yeah Bruce, one of Bruce Willis's kids is in there too. I think. Yeah, no, makes makes sense. I love that, like <laughs> uh, Clifton Collins Jr. Uh, as uh, you know the uh, the Mexican Ernesto yeah. the Mexican Vaquero who has like I think one line. <laughs> you know. Yeah, if you actually watch the deleted scenes, he's in the movie more. Okay, yeah, Rumor Willis. Rumor Willis is in it. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Oh. Would you like? To, I do. I did pull this up, so we should mention it while we're in the trivia mode. Okay. I did look up the Wikipedia page for one zero zero five zero Cielo Drive. Okay. Because it was linked, and I opened mm-hmm. it up. The list of people who lived at that fucking address <laughs> is astonishing. Lillian Gish lived there in the forties. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see who else do we have. Cary Grant and Diane Cannon. It oh was yeah. Her honeymoon nest in nineteen sixty five. Henry Fonda. Uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, Samantha Egger, uh, 
Charles Manson visited in 68 when it's yep. owned by um, Polanski and his wife, Sharon. All the kind of people with that. Uh, Trent Reznor ends up buying it later on and recorded both uh, his 92 and 94 album. Uh, oh. You know, started recording sessions for most of the Nine Inch Nails album, The Downward Spiral. And then uh, he was approached by somebody who was like one of the uh, relatives of Sharon Tate or like her sister or something. Mm-hmm. And was like, yeah, this feels like kind of a creepy thing for you to be doing in this place. And he kind of realized like, oh yeah, that's actually like, I wasn't really thinking, I just kind of thought it was like this weird like piece of history and didn't really connect to the humanity of it. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he like moves out, he kind of moves out, he stops living there. And then eventually it's demolished a few years later. Uh, and, uh, like a new house was built near there. It gets a new address and everything. Um, but like nothing of the original actually remains. And that was kind of like Trump Reznor. I don't think he like personally made that decision, but it was sort of one of those like, yeah, we, we need to just make this. He was the last owner basically, or the last person to live there. So, um, it's got, yeah, it's got this really long like history basically. That was kind of fascinating that there is know, a so many people lived in this particular address and then it ends up being the site of this, uh, horrible series of murders. Yeah. There, there is a kind of a ghosts of Hollywood quality to this a little bit, you know, th- throughout it. But, um, <laughs> one last thing before we close up here. I, d- I just, I was just thinking about fucking Rick Dalton in his fucking swimming pool, uh, reading his lines, practicing his lines. What it what it must have sucked being his fucking neighbor, man, because he's just out there drunk, playing a tape with his yeah. racist Mexican impression of the character saying the line, "Oh no, senor, do not do these." It's like, ah, come on now, get your little chipotle <laughs> heart down here, and, and he's just it's yelling it. Really it. heart down here. <laughs> it's a, and he's just fucking yelling it at the top of his lungs, like to be a neighbor with that guy's like fucking rick dalton again he's drunk again he's out there saying his racist shit <laughs> yep no there there is that and i love that uh you know when he's sitting there and he's making his drink and he's like you know like something something spanish you know and, yep. and then he's kind of doing his lines and you and you see that again like he has the tape recorder like after he blows his lines and then he kind of yep. comes back for his big scene and um, we didn't even talk about the little girl the yeah, who's girl, amazing who, who's the actress in the film is really amazing and i think there's there's some interesting stuff there about like again, this is the new Hollywood that's kind of coming yeah. on and like the much more kind of professional kind of thing. She's um, like, but she's like what eleven and a method actor or something like or nine. Right. And, yeah. no, she, he's like, what are you twelve? And she's like, I'm eight or something yeah. like that. You know, it's like a little proto Jodie Foster there. You know? Yeah, she's like doing her own stunts and shit. It's like, yeah. he's like, I didn't hurt you, did you? Oh no, I do all my own stunts. I well, got extra and the fact that she, and the fact that she does her stunts also mm-hmm. kind of speaks to the like the bullshit that Rick Dalton's whole thing is. You know, her because stunt all... double comes up to congratulate her. Like she's just <laughs> yeah. doing nothing. She's just right. standing there. It's like we don't need you. It's fine. I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do my stunts, you know. But it is like you know, Rick Dalton, who's like, well, if I, what happens if I break my ankle or something like that? I I can be out for weeks, and you know, she's like, no, I got pads. We're fine. We're fine. Yeah, I'm gonna get your girl. Throw me, throw me to the ground. Like it's gonna be great. So would you say you you carry uh, Rick's load? What carries load? Oh yeah, I carry his load. <laughs> It's like, come on, that's a little too obvious. I think that was in the trailer, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Um, We should wrap it up. We should wrap it up. Yeah. So, uh, what are we? What are we doing next? Next time? Um, let's pull up the list. Why don't Mm. we? As long as we're here, we can announce it. Um. Sorry, Google Sheets is loading. There we go. So we can do. 
all of there are three films that we have before 1910 currently on the list and that's yep. a trip to the moon the great train robbery and the battle in the clouds um combined yep. these are less than 60 minutes long so yeah. we could easily bang all three of these out i mean uh, the great train robbery is i think eight minutes long or something like yeah. that you know and um they exist in different formats because it depends on how they're projected um because there's like a right. 24 frame projection versus a 12 uh uh, frame per per second projection and so we'll have to i don't know well they're all they're all public domain obviously so we'll be able to source them well, all and, and kind of it's like there's it they're all yeah they're all so short we could just watch all the different versions anyway really right right i mean it's not it's not going to be a challenge to kind of get through these yeah. I mean, but i think we can cover it and i think we could do a full episode trying, kind of talking about um those three movies um yeah so uh yeah no and and uh i had i had kind of left a lot of that stuff off the list originally just on the like are we really going to do a movie that's eight minutes long but at least put them on and so yeah let's just let's just do it let's just start that way so that's what we're gonna do those three yeah i mean i think i think trip to the moon and great train robbery are both pretty historically significant just in their influence as well i think um you know from what i was reading i kind of i hadn't I hadn't heard the title before, but I was I was kind of Googling. Yeah, that was it. new to me too. That one. Yeah, it looks it looks interesting. So um, yeah, that's what we're gonna do. Um, right. So that's a trip to the moon, nineteen oh two, Great Train Robbery from oh three, and the Battle in the Clouds from oh nine. Yeah. Uh, so Daniel, where can people find you on the interwebs? I'm on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper. You can find me there. Um, you can find me um, talking about Nazis and the terrible things they believe at my other podcast. Uh, that's uh, I don't speak German. That's uh, I don't speak German. Uh, go and check it out. Um, unfortunately, I don't get to roast them alive with a flamethrower. It's just an audio flamethrower. But the rhetorical technique I use is not dissimilar. <laughs> <laughs> Die, you Nazi bastards! <laughs> I think some of them might rather face the flamethrower than me talking about them. Seems that way. Um, <laughs> And you can find us, of course, at tmbdos.podbean.com, or you can find our Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Facebook links. Join the Facebook group. That way you can uh, get in touch with us and leave your comments, suggestions, recommendations, all that good stuff. And until next time, yeah, we're we're finally uh, doing it. We're starting off in the 1900s and uh, have an interesting journey this year to uh, to go through. Great. Yeah, And we'll, uh, we'll try to get a version of this out there for uh, the listeners to look at as well because uh, and to add whatever whatever films or to highlight the ones that you'd really like to see us do and that sort of thing yeah um, we're really kind of we're really kind of playing it by ear um, but I tried to kind of prep up a whole bunch of stuff at least in the kind of the early you know up to 1940 I put a whole bunch of stuff on the list so uh, I think it's, it's going to be exciting yeah uh, so thank you Daniel thank you everyone for listening and we'll be back when we're back goodbye Smelling sweet Move up the road To the outside of town And the sound of that good gospel
suddenly still And when you'd almost bet you could hear yourself sweat He walks in Eyes black as coal And when he lifts his face Every here in the place is on Want to be the prettiest, sunniest blonde in town? Well, of course you do. Well, you listen to this now. sun did it, but it's really Summer Blonde, the gentle hair lightener. Just shampoo, it looks like the sun did it. Get Summer Blonde or new Summer Blonde Plus with its own conditioning rinse for extra body and shine. Say the sun did it, don't let on that. It was really Summer Blonde. It's light and such a tiny touch that you can always say. The sun did it. It's the sun shine. The sun did it. That's the super cop-out. Mojave goes from 0 to 30 in 1.8 seconds, but the down payment remains at zeros. Can you dig it? Huh? Well, you check it, and you can catch it at your nearest Montgomery Ward Auto Center, open every night until 9. The real Don
listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.